If credibility is the lifeblood of journalism, the mainstream media is dead. It wasn't killed by competition from the internet. It committed suicide. We know the approximate date of its demise, 2016. We know the cause, the abandonment of objectivity. We even know the method of the suicide, the full participation in a conspiracy to destroy a political candidate and then, ultimately, his presidency. This is not only my judgment, it's the judgment of the most prestigious publication in the field of journalism, the Columbia Journalism Review. In January of 2023, the review published a 26,000-word, four-part investigation into the conspiracy commonly known as Russiagate. It was written by Jeff Gerth, a highly regarded former New York Times reporter with decades of experience. Gerth concluded that every major claim in the Russiagate narrative was false. Let's step back and consider what this means. For some five years, the mainstream media, the New York Times, Washington Post, ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, fed a grotesque lie to the public that Donald Trump colluded with Russia to subvert an American election. We're talking about dozens of news organizations and hundreds of reporters working in concert to spread fictitious claims in thousands upon thousands of news articles, TV segments, podcasts, and opinion pieces. Given Girth's reputation and that of the Columbia Journalism Review, the article should have been front-page news and led every TV news program. It didn't. Given Girth's conclusions, you would expect the media would engage in serious soul-searching. It didn't. The media that acted as the stenographer of the conspiracy simply ignored Girth's report. In short, they lied, and then covered up their lies with silence. Even Girth, a veteran newsman, was shocked. Only about a dozen out of the 60 journalists he reached out to spoke to him. As Girth describes it, not a single major news organization made available a newsroom leader to talk about their coverage. One can only wonder what these newsroom leaders would have told him. The picture that emerges from Girth's investigation is a morass of malfeasance greased by naked ambition and ideological bias. This list of offenses is so voluminous and so far outside the lanes of accepted journalistic practice that they're hard to keep track of. Here are just a few. The so-called Steele dossier, with its lurid accusations that Donald Trump had close ties to Vladimir Putin and Russian intelligence, was a collection of unsourced fabrications cut and pasted together by Trump-hating former British spy working for and paid by the Hillary Clinton campaign. It was complete fiction. The story that the Trump Organization was secretly connected to computers at a Russian financial institution called Alpha Bank, another complete fiction. This one concocted by Clinton campaign lawyers. The accusation that Carter Page and George Papadopoulos, early and peripheral foreign policy advisors to the Trump campaign, were Russian agents, complete fiction. Maybe even worse were how these fictions were often peddled to the public. Working with the FBI or some other government entity, the media would publish an accusation of Trump-Russia collusion. The FBI would then look into the story. The media would report the FBI's curiosity and suggest that if the FBI was interested, there must be something to it. Sometimes it would work the other way around. The FBI or some other government entity would feed spurious information to the media and the media, citing anonymous government sources to add a flavor of credibility, would report it. In either direction, the insinuation was the same. Where there is smoke, there must be fire. But there wasn't any smoke, and there wasn't any fire. 
Did the media believe its own lies? It's hard to know. If sheer volume is any indication, they certainly acted like they did. Girth reports there were 533,000 articles published about Russia and Trump during just the 22 months of special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Trump's alleged involvement with Russia. And then they congratulated themselves for their efforts. The New York Times and Washington Post were awarded Pulitzer Prizes for their Russiagate reporting. Now that we know that much of that reporting was poorly sourced, rarely checked, and sometimes just made up, have the Times or the Post returned their prizes? Of course not. Journalism is no longer about gathering the facts and presenting an accurate picture of reality. It's about choosing sides. This is the opposite of journalism. It's political warfare, scorched earth activism masquerading as journalism. Ironically, the only Trump-era collusion that has been proven was between the mainstream media, the Hillary Clinton campaign, the Democratic Party, and elements within government agencies. Together, they did more to sow discord among Americans than Russia could have ever dreamed of doing on its own. For the better part of a decade, the media invested all of its credibility in advancing the claim that Trump colluded with Russia to steal an election. That credibility is now gone. So where do we find the truth? Not from the mainstream media. It's dead. It killed itself. I'm Ashley Rinsberg, author of The Gray Lady Winked, How the New York Times Misreporting, Distortions, and Fabrications Radically Alter History for Prager University. Thank you for watching this video. To keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation. When we think about indigenous people, we think about their deep roots and long-standing connections to the land they inhabit, often spanning centuries or even millennia. For example, the Chinese from China, the Egyptians are from Egypt, and the Indians are from India. But what about the Jews? Well, the Jews are from Judea the modern-day land of Israel, where Jewish heritage stretches back over 3,000 years. And like other indigenous people, the connection to the Jewish homeland is an integral part of the Jewish identity. Judaism is not just a religion, but the Jews are also a people with strong ties to the place from which they originated, the ancient land of Israel. The practice of Judaism is directly connected to that land. It celebrates holidays like the harvest time and has prayers that are tied to the seasons in the land of Israel. Seven crop species, including olives, grapes, wheat, and barley, are cherished in Jewish symbolism because they represent Israel, the land flowing with milk and honey. For centuries, Jews have been saying or next year in Jerusalem, never forgetting their connection to the land of Israel. But don't just take my word for it. Historians and archaeologists also point to artifacts and historical writings that prove the connection between the land of Israel and the Jewish people. Hebrew inscriptions have been found on thousands of artifacts dating as far back as the 6th century BC. Hebrew is my mother's tongue. I can read these thousands of years old artifacts. In addition to Jewish sources, an Egyptian document dating to approximately 1200 BC mentions a campaign in which an Egyptian ruler says that he has defeated Israel. Israel is no more, the document reads. Probably the worst prophecy ever made about the Jews since, you know, I'm still here. The Hebrew Bible is, of course, more than just a history book, but there's a lot of verified history in it. The fact that Jerusalem is mentioned 669 times in its pages confirms that the city is central to the Jewish identity. 
Politically, the land of Israel swapped hands for thousands of years, but it was never anything other than a sovereign Jewish state. Let me say that again. The only sovereign state that ever existed in the land of Israel forever is a Jewish state. The Jewish people have formed three nation states in the land of Israel throughout history. The first was the first commonwealth ruled by the House of David, and it lasted for more than four centuries. Israel was united by King David, and Jerusalem was the capital of that Jewish state. The first temple built by King Solomon was a huge source of Jewish pride. Then the Babylonians conquered the land, exiling most of the Jewish residents to Babylon. In 539 BC, Persia's King Cyrus conquered Babylon and issued the Cyrus Decree, allowing the Jews to return to Israel. And many did. They rebuilt the country, including the second temple in Jerusalem, on the site of the destroyed first temple. Its western wall is still standing, and today it is the holiest site of the Jewish people. The second Jewish state is often referred to as the Second Commonwealth, later called the Kingdom of Judea, born from the Maccabean Revolt against the Greeks. Hello, Hanukkah. It was a time of independence, but it didn't last. In 70 AD, the Romans conquered Jerusalem and burned down the temple, exiling most of the Jewish population and giving the land a new name, Palestina, in order to disconnect the relationship between the Jewish people and their homeland. After the destruction of the Second Temple, the land of Israel changed hands many times, from the Romans, the Byzantines, the Caliphate, the Crusaders, the Mamluks, the Ottomans, and the British Empire. But it wasn't until the 19th century that the Jewish people's longing to return to their homeland became an existential need because of the rise of murderous anti-Semitism. A movement was born, Zionism, the Jewish people's right to have a state again. Zion, by the way, is just another name for Jerusalem. It's mentioned in the Bible over a hundred times. Zionism is a movement for Jewish self-determination in their ancestral land in a Jewish, not an exclusively Jewish state. Initially, locals welcomed new Jewish immigrants, like my great-grandparents, who brought prosperity to the land with new cities and agricultural villages called kibbutzim. The people they encountered there included the community of Jews who had never left Israel, known as the Old Yeshuv. The Israeli Declaration of Independence ensures equality of social and political rights to all its citizens, regardless of religion, race, or sex, guaranteeing freedom of religion, conscience, language, education, and culture, and pledging to safeguard the holy places of all religions, which is what Israel does. Israel doesn't deny anyone else's identity. Of course, there have always been people of non-Jewish identity in the land, including modern Arab Palestinians, who also have ties to the place the Jews celebrate as the land of Israel and the Christians call the Holy Land. But if you support indigenous people's rights, you should also be a Zionist and understand that the Jews are the indigenous people of the land of Israel, who never really left. I'm Noah Tishby, author of Israel, A Simple Guide to the Most Misunderstood Country on Earth for Prager University. By all accounts, Franklin Pierce, the 14th President of the United States, was a fine person. Charming, caring, deeply empathetic. These are all characteristics you want in a friend, and Pierce had many, but they don't necessarily make for a strong leader. Unfortunately, Pierce's appointment with history came when such a leader was sorely needed. Try as he might to fill the role, Pierce couldn't do it. 
Franklin Pierce was born November 23, 1804 in Hillsborough, New Hampshire. Raised in the shadow of his prominent father, Benjamin, a Revolutionary War hero, Franklin began his political career shortly after graduating from Bowdoin College in 1824. He was a political natural. In addition to his good looks, he was an eloquent speaker. Gifted with a photographic memory, he almost always spoke without notes, connecting directly to his audience. He won his first election in 1829 to the New Hampshire State Legislature. In 1832, he was elected to Congress, and by 1837, he was a U.S. Senator, the youngest member at the time. The overriding political issue of the day was slavery. To understand Pierce, we need to understand his position on this issue. While not a slave owner himself, Pierce believed that the Constitution committed the federal government to protecting slavery. Not surprisingly, Pierce's position endeared him to his Southern colleagues. This support was key to his political career. By 1842, Pierce was ready to leave Washington. He needed to make more money and care for his chronically ill wife. He did both without ever truly leaving politics. In fact, he became more influential during this period by becoming the Democratic Party boss of his home state of New Hampshire. He might have happily stayed there were it not for the outbreak of the Mexican-American War in 1846. The Americans won that war decisively, acquiring vast new territories in the West, including California. But the victory also had the unintended consequence of stirring up the slavery issue. What would happen to these new territories? Would they become slave or free? After fierce debates, the Compromise of 1850 resolved the issue. Or so it seemed. California would be admitted into the Union as a free state, while the status of the new territories of New Mexico and Utah would be determined at a later unspecified time. And that's where things stood when Franklin Pierce, through an improbable series of circumstances, became America's 14th president. When the Democratic Convention opened in June 1852 in Baltimore, Pierce was not even a dark horse candidate. He wasn't a horse at all. But when the convention repeatedly deadlocked between Michigan Senator Lewis Cass, former Secretary of State James Buchanan, and Illinois Senator and the mastermind of the Compromise of 1850, Stephen Douglas, Pierce saw his chance. On the convention's 49th ballot, Pierce emerged as the compromise candidate everyone North and South could get behind. With the opposition party, the Whigs, hopelessly divided between their own Northern and Southern wings, Pierce easily took the White House. Pierce's goal for his presidency was to do everything he could to keep the Democratic Party united and the country calm. As modest as this sounds, this proved very difficult to achieve. To keep his party united, he appointed Northerners and Southerners to key government posts. Jefferson Davis of Mississippi, for example, was his Secretary of War, and Caleb Cushing, a Massachusetts moderate, was his Attorney General. To keep the country calm, Pierce strongly endorsed the 1850 Compromise. And then one Sunday in January 1854, it all began to unravel. Stephen Douglas showed up at the White House with a new idea he promised would resolve the slavery issue once and for all. It was deceptively simple. Let new territories, future states, determined by popular vote, Douglas called this popular sovereignty, whether they would be slave or free. This principle became the core of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, perhaps the most disastrous piece of legislation in American history. It repealed the Missouri Compromise of 1820 that had banned slavery above latitude 3630, 
thereby opening up the rest of the Louisiana Territory to slavery. And it shattered the tenuous peace achieved by the 1850 Compromise. Almost immediately, anger, often violent, exploded across Kansas, across Congress, and across the nation as both sides, free and slave, battled to control that state's destiny. From 1854 on, and a glimpse of the conflagration to come, bleeding Kansas was a virtual war zone. Why did Pierce agree to Douglas's plan and help him push it through Congress? One answer is that Douglas was the stronger personality. Pierce simply lacked the fortitude to say no. But there's a second possible answer. Pierce sincerely believed that the Kansas-Nebraska Act would work and reunite the country. It did just the opposite, of course, and it cost him a second term. He couldn't even win his party's nomination in 1856. Four years and one more failed president later, the country would be engulfed in a catastrophic war. It would take an entirely different kind of leader to save the nation. I'm Joseph Borneri, professor of political science at the Rochester Institute of Technology and director of the Center for Statesmanship, Law, and Liberty for Prager University. I recently had the great classicist and military historian Victor Davis Hansen on my YouTube show, The Sad Truth. Victor ended our conversation with the following. It's so nice to see an academic who smiles. I don't do it enough, but you do. His comment moved me deeply. Sure, my positive demeanor is partly my nature, but like everyone else, I've had my share of misfortune and disappointment. I grew up literally in the middle of a war zone in Beirut, Lebanon. I had a promising future as a soccer player kicked out from under me by a devastating injury. I've lost coveted teaching positions because of my iconoclastic political views. The list of personal setbacks is very long. So I'm sure is yours. That's just the way it is, and we all know it. But I refuse to let life beat me down. I don't want to be unhappy for five minutes longer than necessary. Life is too precious and too short. To that end, I've given the subject of happiness a lot of thought. Here are seven ways to maximize your happiness. One, find the right spouse. The most important person in life is your spouse, so choose wisely. He or she is also the person you are going to spend the most time with. This is why liking your spouse is even more important than loving them, although thankfully, the two usually go together. Spending time with someone with whom you share values, who is your best friend, is bliss. Spending time with someone who doesn't share your values is torture. Navigating relationships, even the best ones, is a tricky business. So approach your marriage with humility. You're not perfect and neither is your partner. Two, work your way to the right profession. Most of the time you don't spend with your spouse and your family, you spend at work. A job that you find fulfilling and meaningful means that you're spending a good part of your day in a happy mental state. The opposite is also true. Nothing outside of a bad marriage will make you more miserable than a workplace you can't stand. Three, seek the sweet spot. What is the sweet spot? To understand that, you need to understand the inverted U-curve, perhaps the most useful diagram ever conceived. The optimal functioning of human brains and bodies adheres to the inverted U-curve. Take, for example, perfectionism. 
If you lack any perfectionist bent, say as an author, you will lack the careful attention to details that constitutes an important element of the creative process. On the other hand, if you are too much of a perfectionist, you will spend an inordinate amount of time distracted by minutiae that no one cares about. Somewhere between apathy and perfectionism lies the sweet spot. You can apply the inverted U-curve to every aspect of your personal and professional life. Not too much, not too little. Four, stay playful. Play is a human universal found in all societies. The play instinct is so powerful that even during wartime, children find a way to play. I have personal experience with this. I grew up in a war zone. It didn't stop me from playing with my friends. Life is serious business. Without play, it can be overwhelming. You can't work all the time unless, of course, you can turn your work into play. That's the best of all possible worlds. Five, pursue many interests. Life presents us with an amazing and endless buffet of opportunities. Almost everything qualifies. A chance meeting that leads to a deep friendship, a casual interest that turns into a great hobby, a trip that leads to a lifelong love of travel. Each is a potential new source of happiness. Pursue knowledge across multiple disciplines. This is a truly enriching way to live your life. Six, be persistent and resilient. Life is hard, but if we're persistent and resilient enough, we can use adversity to our advantage. Persistence and resilience are closely related, but different. Persistence means you have a goal and don't let yourself be discouraged when things don't work out the way you plan. You keep pushing forward. Resilience is the ability to keep yourself in the game in the face of failure. So don't be afraid to fail. Failure is the way you learn. Persistence and resilience are the ways you win. Seven, minimize regret. A remarkable hospice care nurse named Bronnie Ware recorded many of the regrets people shared with her on their deathbeds. This one was in the top five. I wish I had let myself be happier. For most of us, our happiness is within our control, at least partially so. When we instead allow ourselves to be mired in unhappiness, especially on issues that are out of our control, we do ourselves a tremendous disservice. Don't let that happen to you. Be happy. It's a better way to live. I'm Gad Saad, professor of marketing at Concordia University and author of The Sad Truth About Happiness for Prager University. Thank you for watching this video. To keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation. I recently came across a book for grade schoolers titled Sylvia and Marcia Start a Revolution. The moral of the story is this. Minority kids should pursue social activism, actually a revolution, to make America a better place. That's almost the conventional wisdom now, but it's completely backwards. If you want to make America a better place for everyone, especially for minorities, forget social activism. Instead, start a business. Starting a business is the real revolutionary act that minorities can take to empower themselves and their communities. Small business owners achieve something no social activist, revolutionary, or politician ever could. They create jobs, not only for themselves, but for millions of others.
The United States is home to 33 million small businesses. These businesses generate two-thirds of all new jobs driving employment, innovation, and economic growth. You could say that small business owners are modern-day alchemists. But unlike alchemists, who try to turn lead into gold, small business owners really do make something from nothing. They create value where it didn't exist before, and the economic impact of this alchemy reverberates throughout their communities and beyond. So who are these small business owners? They are disproportionately minorities. In fact, relative to their population, minorities start businesses more often than their white counterparts, and many are succeeding. Take Carlton Guthrie, for example. Carlton and his brother are the owners of Detroit Chassis, a business that assembles frames for motorhomes and commercial trucks. Carlton grew the company from a small metal stamping shop into a major manufacturer. At present, it earns over $100 million a year in revenue and employs roughly 160 workers, most of whom, like the Guthrie brothers, are black. We see the same trend with Hispanic entrepreneurs. The ratio between white and Hispanic household wealth declined from 8 to 1 in 2013 to 5 to 1 in 2019 as Hispanics became more entrepreneurial. Carlos Gazatua, the Cuban-American owner of Sergio's Restaurant in Miami, understands the importance of minority entrepreneurship. He calls the minorities to show their success. He wants the younger generation to know that business success is possible and that the system is not rigged against minorities. Entrepreneurship is the essence of the American dream, Carlos concludes. He couldn't be more right. According to the Kauffman Foundation, 360 out of every 100,000 Americans start a business in any given month. Yet among Hispanics, this figure is 540 per 100,000, 50% higher than the American average. There are 10 million minority-owned small businesses in America, generating $2 trillion of annual wealth and employing 10 million people. Most of these businesses are located in minority communities where they employ minority workers. So it's all good news, right? Well, unfortunately not. Small businesses, because they are small, are much more vulnerable than larger businesses to bad government policies. Consider this. Which business has more difficulty contending with an ever-rising government-mandated minimum wage? The neighborhood dry cleaner or the downtown law firm? Who is more impacted by inflation caused by reckless government spending? The owner of a local barbecue joint or the CEO of a financial services company? Whose bottom line is more squeezed by rising gas prices caused by restrictive government energy policy? The landscaper? or the work-at-home data analyst. The lesson here should be obvious. It's already difficult for entrepreneurs to compete against established players, but it's much more difficult when they also have to battle bad government policies. What would good government policies look like? They would follow a simple principle that should be the basis for all government policy. First, do no harm. Every new tax, every new regulation cuts into the bottom line. Add on crushing inflation, and you erode entrepreneurs' already slim profit margins even further. Only by making profits can small businesses expand operations, hire new employees, and increase wages and benefits. 
talk to almost any entrepreneur about what they want from the government, and they'll give you this response. Leave me alone. To lift up minorities and close the racial economic gap, we shouldn't look to Sylvia and Marsha or social activists or government do-gooders. They are, to put it as kindly as possible, unhelpful. We should look to the millions of economic pioneers, many of them minority entrepreneurs, who are risking everything to make their lives and our lives better every day. So if you really want to start a revolution, start a business. I'm Alfredo Ortiz, CEO of Job Creators Network for Prager University. I am the fallen soldier, sailor, airman, and Marine. Remember me. I am the one that held the line. Sometimes I volunteered. Sometimes I went because I was told to go. But when the nation called, I answered. In order to serve, I left behind the family, friends, and freedom that so many take for granted. Over time, I used different weapons. A sword, a musket, a bayonet, a rifle, a machine gun. Often, I marched into battle on foot. Other times, I rode to battle on horseback or in wagons, sometimes on trains, later in tanks or jeeps or Humvees. In early wars, my ships were made of wood and powered by the wind. Later, they were made of steel and powered by diesel fuel or the atom. I even took to the air and mastered the sky in planes, helicopters, and jets. The machines of war evolved and changed with the times. But remember that it was always me, the warrior, that had to fight our nation's enemies. I fought at Lexington and Concord as our nation was born. I crossed the Delaware on Christmas Day in 1776. In the Civil War, I fought with my brothers and against my brothers at Gettysburg and Shiloh and Bull Run. I learned that we must never again divide. In World War I, I marched on the Marne and held the line at Bella Wood. The war to end all wars, they called it. I just called it hell. In World War II, I fought everywhere. The beaches of Normandy, the Battle of the Bulge, the hell of Guadalcanal. I stood against tyranny and kept darkness from consuming the world. In Korea, I landed at Incheon and broke out of the Chosen Reservoir. They called it the Forgotten War, but I never forgot. In Vietnam, I fought in the Mekong Delta, at Khe Sanh and Hamburger Hill. Some say my country wavered, but I did not waver, ever. In the recent past, I have fought in Iraq and Afghanistan, in Baghdad, Fallujah, and Ramadi, in Kunar, Helmand, and Kandahar. As technology advanced, I used night vision goggles and global positioning systems and drones and lasers and thermal optics. But it was still me, a human being, that did the work. It was me that patrolled up the mountains or across the desert or through the streets. It was me that suffered in merciless heat and bitter cold. It was me that went out night after night to confront our nation's enemies and confront evil face to face. It was me. Remember me. 
I was a warrior. But also remember that I was not only a warrior. Remember also that I was a son, a brother, a father. I was a daughter, a sister, a mother. I was a person like you, a real person with hopes and dreams for the future. I wanted to have children. I wanted to see my son score a touchdown or shoot the winning basket. I wanted to walk my daughter down the aisle. I wanted to kiss my wife again. When I told her I would be with her until the end, I meant it. When I told my children I would always be there for them, I meant it. But I gave all that away. All of it. On that distant battlefield, amongst the fear and the fire and the bullets, or in the sky above enemy territory filled with flak, or on the unforgiving sea where we fought against the enemy and against the depths of the abyss. There, in those awful places, I held the line. I did not waver and I did not hesitate. I, the soldier, sailor, airman, or marine, I stood my ground and sacrificed my life, my future, my hopes, my dreams. I sacrificed everything for you. This Memorial Day, remember me, the fallen warrior, and remember me not for my sake, but for yours. Remember what I sacrificed so you can truly appreciate the incredible treasures you have. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. You have the joys of life, the joys that I gave up so that you can relish in them. A cool wind in the air, the gentle spring grass on your bare feet, the warm summer sun on your face, family, friends, and freedom. Never forget where it all came from. It came from sacrifice, the supreme sacrifice. Live a life that honors us, the fallen heroes. Remember us and make every day Memorial Day. No one was more surprised than Millard Fillmore when the Whig Party chose him to be Zachary Taylor's running mate in the 1848 election. Working as the comptroller, essentially the treasurer, of New York State at the time, Fillmore was well-known in Washington. He had been a New York congressman for a decade, but the VP slot? Fillmore didn't see it coming, and he didn't hesitate to say yes when offered the job. On the surface, Taylor and Fillmore seemed to be a good fit. Taylor had never run for elective office. He was the great hero of the Mexican-American War. When he wasn't soldiering, he lived on a plantation in the Deep South. Fillmore, a northerner, spent his professional life in politics. Both had grown up on the edge of the frontier. Both were entirely self-made. It was a marriage made in machine politics heaven. And it worked. Well, to be more accurate, it worked for Taylor. It didn't work for Fillmore. When they won the 1848 election, Fillmore figured that as vice president, he could dispense lucrative federal jobs to his supporters, securing his future as a major force in New York and maybe even national politics. He also figured that with his knowledge of Congress and his vast experience in the political arena, he would be a trusted Taylor advisor. He figured wrong on both counts. 
Taylor gave him no access to patronage. He wasn't interested in boosting Fillmore's career in New York or anywhere else. And Taylor did not bring Fillmore into his inner circle. The two men didn't even meet until after the election. And when they did, they didn't much like each other. It seems that there are many differences on political issues, though assets during the campaign were detriments after it. For example, Taylor, the Southerner, accepted slavery, though to his credit, he did oppose its spread to new states, while Fillmore, the Northerner, opposed slavery. Fillmore made one more miscalculation. He never thought Taylor would die in office. After dedicating the base of the Washington Monument on a very hot, humid day, Taylor returned to the White House with heat exhaustion. Then, the doctors got a hold of him. In the mid-19th century, this was not necessarily a good thing. Over the next few days, Taylor's health got worse. He died on July 9, 1850. The doctors, trying all manner of nostrums, including bleeding him from the wrist, effectively cured him to death. Fillmore, thanks to the precedent John Tyler established 10 years before, suddenly found himself the 13th president of the United States. It would have been a difficult job for anyone. On the one hand, thanks to victory in the Mexican-American War, a new treaty with Spain, and the rise of the Mormon community in Utah, the United States had in just the previous year almost doubled in size. Texas, California, New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, and Colorado would all eventually become states. On the other hand, there was a burning question. Which would be free states and which would be slave states? During a four-hour speech, the aging lion of the Senate, Whig leader Henry Clay, proposed an omnibus bill that would settle all the issues. But the Senate was so divided that agreement on a single bill proved impossible. Feelings ran so hot that on more than one occasion, actual fistfights broke out on the Senate floor. Fillmore, with the help of Illinois Senator Stephen Douglas, a Democrat, came up with a practical solution. Break the big bill into five separate parts. Each part could then be debated on its own merits. This was known as the Compromise of 1850. Here's how each piece broke down. One, California would be admitted as a free state. Two, the boundaries of Texas, already a slave state, were fixed. Three, the New Mexico and Utah territories would be allowed to determine for themselves whether they would be free or slave. Four, the slave trade would be abolished in Washington, D.C. Five, the right of Southern slave owners to recover runaway slaves in the North was enhanced. Fillmore hated this last bill, the Fugitive Slave Act, but he signed it anyway. He feared with good reason that if he didn't, the Southern states would bolt and the Union would be shattered. In other words, he feared civil war. History has not been kind to the Compromise of 1850. But at the time, the nation breathed a huge sigh of relief. Civil war had been averted, or so they thought. If Zachary Taylor hadn't died in office, he would have almost certainly vetoed all or part of the five bills. But thanks to the pragmatic Millard Fillmore, they all crossed the finish line. To get it done, Fillmore had alienated his own Whig party, killing any chance he had of winning their presidential nomination in 1852. As it turned out, he was the last of the Whig line. The party would dissolve over the coming decade, torn apart by internal disagreements. It would be replaced by a new anti-slavery party with a much clearer vision of the future. They would call themselves Republicans.
I'm Jared Cohen, author of Accidental Presidents, Eight Men Who Changed America for Prager University. Thank you for watching this video. To keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation.